Hello, hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Skeptics and Seekers Sunday Sermon. This is for us. I'm David Johnson. Let's get started. That's that's what I want to do in this little video, man, is just shed some light on what these teachings actually mean. So we are entering a conversation with Aaron Abke and Connor Murphy. Uh, this is just a short portion of a much longer conversation. And uh, due to uh, demands on time and uh, how I feel, um, we're going to go with the short version today, but I will revisit this next week, assuming that I remember that I'm going to revisit this next week. And uh, we'll take another chunk of this conversation. We, uh, it's, it's kind of a long conversation, so we might have to do this in three parts altogether. So sorry to break it up into so many pieces, but it, it seems like a very interesting conversation. I wanted to bring you something different, something from a couple of progressives. Now, I don't know how they label themselves, but I think um, the, the typical Christian would uh, would say, oh, yeah, these are these are very progressive uh, people. So I, I want to bring you a little bit more on the progressive side. You're welcome, Peter. Um, we've been talking a little bit about hell over at Red Letters. Why? Because Jesus keeps talking about it. He won't shut up about it. And so I can't shut up about it if we're gonna if we're gonna be looking at the uh, at the Red Letters, which we are over at Patreon.com/slash/RedLetters.com. If you are not already a patron, go over and sign up. Uh, get a free copy of my latest book, Red Letters, A Closer Look at the Worst Moral and Practical Teachings in History, and uh, we'll love to, love to see you there. Come on over and join the conversation. Okay, uh, so Abke and uh, Connor, they are, they are debunking the myth that Jesus ever talked about hell. I'm going to say up front, I think they make some pretty good points. They do make some pretty good points. Uh, so this should be, uh, you know, some interesting commentary. I think that hell deniers, this is a tough one for me. I don't think hell deniers are coming at this with the right motives. I think that hell deniers are denying hell largely because hell is a losing argument for the Christian, and it goes against their their theology of love, 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 uh, because their idea of love is a little bit more uh, traditional, and they don't buy that it's a loving act to burn people in flames forever, okay? Uh, now, that said, progressives, many progressives, have denied that this is why they do it. So someone like, um, like, uh, I'm blanking on the name now. Um, but th there are some people who vehemently deny that they come at this because of, um, some discomfort with the, with the subject or with, with theological discomfort. They they say that it is purely a theological endeavor, and I have to take them at their word. But I think that many people, particularly the people who don't say that, really are coming at it because they also say 
that they are coming at it because uh, the idea of hell just seems uh, ridiculous to them. But that said, um, I think there are some good points on the side of hell denial. Now, by it, I don't believe that the Bible does deny hell. I think that Jesus does talk about hell. I think that is a, a part of it. But, you know, I don't, I don't believe that without having studied both sides of the issue. <laughs> I, I grew up on the more conservative, more straight-ahead reading of it. But I've done other reading and other studies. And um, I, I know what the other side is saying, even if I don't always understand what they're saying. And I can acknowledge when I think they're making a good point. In fact, uh, some of the points they make are the same as the points I make. Because here's the thing, I'm also a hell denier. Every skeptic that I know is a hell denier. Right, but we're hell deniers because we don't believe in God. <laughs> we don't believe in uh, any of it. So, uh, as a Christian, I wasn't a hell denier, and if I were a Christian again, I still wouldn't be a hell denier. But uh, I share a lot of mental DNA right now with hell deniers, and I make many of the same points that they do. And so uh, that's why it's it's a little bit of an interesting thing to interact with uh, hell deniers. So these, uh, these people are going to talk about why they think Jesus never talked about hell. Now, I don't believe this. As a, as a reader of the, the biblical literature, Jesus talked about hell. I'm, I'm pretty convinced of that. But that said, there are good arguments to be had on the other side. And I think that uh, these two make some of those arguments, and I think they do a pretty good job. Uh, some of what they argue are just, frankly, clonkers, in my opinion, but I, I think they do a pretty good job. And the uh, more interesting part to me is not the hell denying in this discussion, it's the heaven denying, which I think you also have to do if you're going to be a hell denier. You can't just deny the bad thing you also have to deny heaven. You have to define these things in a in a particular way. So this week, uh, we're gonna we're gonna deal with uh, the first part of this conversation that denies both heaven and hell. And uh, I'll try to do limited interruptions at this point because at this point I've talked uh, a little more than half as long as they did <laughs> in the whole video. So. Um, We'll, uh, we'll do this first part this week, and uh, we'll give you more the next week. Those of you who are interested in a health update, I'll try to keep this under two minutes. Uh, the infection is worse than they thought. Uh, it runs deeper in the leg than they thought. So they have put me on uh, IV antibiotics because the orals were not working. So I have a pick line in my arm. Uh, a pick line, I'll look it up, PIC or PICC. Uh, both both are correct, apparently. Uh, so I've got a pick line in my arm. The thing itches like a mother. And, um, and it kind of hurts. And it's annoying. And I've got to do uh, injections every eight hours. And that's whole production 
so my life is a little bit more restricted uh, than it was uh, a few days ago even. So that's something that I'm doing now. We'll see how that goes. We'll see if that fixes the infection problem. And then we can get on about the business of actually healing. Because apparently if you have an infection in your leg, your, your bones won't heal. Uh, so let's hope that that's the reason why I wasn't seeing as much progress as the doctors would hope. And uh, let's hope that this IV antibiotic thing clears things up. Okay, with no further ado, let's listen to some more of this conversation. I'll go ahead and start off, right? You probably know a lot more than me. So let me let me get mine out of the way. Let me show that I, I know a few of these teachings too. Um, <laughs> you're not so, a total heretic is what you're saying. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So um, probably one of my favorite because I, I feel like it's just so direct and it makes so much sense. And I feel like it's just, it seems... Like we have to make so many assumptions and twist it so hard for this to mean something that it does not. But one of my favorite quotes is, I believe, Luke 17, 21, where Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is within. Oh, yeah. Right? right? Of course. I mean, like, no, knowing what I know now, it's so obvious. I mean, heaven is internal, right? It's, you could think of it as a state of mind or rather... I mean, the experience that you have to have to get to that state of mind is even beyond mind, right? It's, it's mm -hmm. this experiential experience that's even beyond mind, right? But it doesn't have to do with any external thing or, or mystical realm or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. am, I, am I right? Yeah, that's, that's always a passage that I, <clears throat> I never heard a good explanation for in church because there's just no way of excusing that one away. It's, it's so clearly... Um, mystical in nature. It's so clearly a non-dual pointing. I think this is a good point and one that I have made in the past. Heck, I made this point as a Christian. I had uh, the same problem with this passage as um, as they do. But, you know, the, the typical solution, if a Christian even thinks about this at all, is that heaven is, I'm sorry, the kingdom of heaven is multiple things. Now, this is the solution for a lot of things. Uh, words in the Bible are multiple things. Now, I understand that words often have multiple meanings, and, and you have to choose the best meaning that fits the context, but Christians don't want to do that, so it's all of the above for the Christian. Uh, I was listening and ultimately rejected one uh, conversation about hell, I, I thought it was just too much low-hanging fruit to be uh, interesting, but um, she was talking about the various things that Jesus might have meant when he was talking about hell. And she, she came up with three or four different possibilities of what he could have meant. And her conclusion was, well, it's a little bit of all of that. Except for the the one that the conservative Christians use, it's not that one. But <laughs> of these other ones, it it is it, a little bit of all of them. And so, rather than rather than uh, giving us some clarity on it, she just said, "Yeah, all all of the above." And that's that's the um, tactic with the kingdom of heaven as well. Uh, the kingdom of heaven 
exists now in our hearts. The kingdom of heaven is something that will happen when Jesus uh, has ultimate rule and authority on the earth. The kingdom of heaven exists right now in another realm. Well, which is it, Christians? Well, it's all of it is usually the answer there. And uh, so to get around this, uh, they will say, yes, Jesus is correct. The kingdom of heaven is in your heart right now. But that's not the fullness of the kingdom of heaven. That's not all that it means. So there is still, you know, a place, a location in this other realm that the Bible is pointing to. And so when Christians read that, they see kingdom of heaven. Okay, heaven equals a place like a physical location in another dimension that we go to when we die here. And Jesus couldn't have been more clear that the kingdom of heaven was, again, another metaphor using whatever flimsy language was available back then. It was just another metaphor for that inexpressible reality that can't be named or defined. Like he was just throwing different analogies and words to it all the time. Uh, you know, I am the bread of life. I am living. I am the living water. Uh, there, there's one passage where he's using this, you know, the Pharisees say like, what sign can you show us? Actually, it's the Jews. What sign can you show us? Moses had bread come down from heaven to prove he was from God. What are you going to do? And Jesus says, I am that bread from heaven. Out of Jesus' own mouth, I am that, he says. And he's using the bread. He's not saying, I'm a loaf of bread. Okay, right? It's, it's a pointer. It's, it's metaphorical. And he's basically saying, as, as Ramana Maharshi or Nisargadatta or any of these you know, famous Hindu sages would say, I am that. I am that nameless, inexpressible reality. I stand here before you. And he says, your fathers ate that freaking bread and they're dead. Where are they? They're in the grave. I am the true bread that comes down from heaven that man may eat of it and never die. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Okay, as good as his point is, I also think that this is where one of the clunkers comes in. So Jesus says, yeah, you know, your ancestors who ate that bread from Moses, they're dead. Where are they now? You know, they're, they literally ate the bread and they are literally now dead. And so Jesus says, eat me and you will never die. And all of a sudden, he's going from those people ate the bread and are literally dead and we are to believe that he's now switched to, but eat me and you will figuratively live forever. You will figuratively never die. Just from a literary perspective, that's whiplash. I, I don't, I can't follow why that wouldn't make sense. Jesus seems to be saying, you will actually never die. Otherwise, what does it mean to figuratively never die? <laughs> to, to figuratively live forever? Um, yeah, I, I don't know either. It's like, whoa, talk about a radical teaching for first century Israel. 
but he, he was so completely dialed into that reality that he couldn't speak from any other place. He, he wasn't speaking as an ego, right? He was speaking as that reality itself. He was the mouthpiece for that. And so humans can only interpret his words through the lens of ego, assuming he's speaking as an ego. So they think he's saying like, I, the human person named Jesus, am the bread of life. And of course, that's blasphemy. Well, that's new. First of all, uh, someone in the comments, uh, please tell me, what does it mean that Jesus was not speaking as an ego? Uh, he was speaking as the thing itself. If, if you are starting to suspect that this conversation is going to head into woo-woo word salad, you are so right. You're gonna hear. You're gonna hear more of that next week, uh, to be sure. But um, you know, this is this is part of the problem. I whereas I acknowledge that there are some good points here and here and there. It gets kind of overshadowed by this kind of stuff because the good points cannot sustain the overall point that they are trying to make. So they have to go to this other place to fully arrive at, at where they're trying to go. Uh, Jesus wasn't speaking as a human because that would be blasphemy. So was Jesus human or not? Was he God or not? I mean, to the progressive, was he God or not? How are we to understand this? And if speaking this way as a human would be blasphemy, then the Jews were right to crucify him for blasphemy, weren't they? <laughs> so you have to say, well, you know, he's, he's human and this other thing. And here he wasn't speaking as human. He was speaking as this other thing. But now as we read the text, we've got another problem. How do we know when Jesus was speaking as a human and when he was speaking as the other thing? Anybody? So to say like the kingdom of heaven is within you, I think he's purposefully, Jesus was always purposefully doing these um, role reversals on people. And in so many of his teachings, he would like flip, invert the script on people because they're like, where is heaven, Jesus? Where is the sign of its coming? How can we locate this place called heaven? And he's like, you can't locate it. You're never going to find it. It's inside of you. Hell yeah. And, and yeah, even the verse before, I love the verse before too, because uh, depending on how it's translated, he says something like, heaven does not come with visible signs or right, heaven cannot right. be observed, right? And uh, it's have like- Have you read the Gospel of Thomas version of that? Uh, no, um, but please enlighten me. Yeah, what does it say? The Gospel of Thomas has a lot of these passages that we see in the canonical gospels, but they're, um, the Gospel of Thomas is older, right? So it's probably more reliable or close to what he actually said. And um, I'm not going to get it right. I could pull it up if you want in a second. But he says something like, um, if you say um, to the birds of the air, like that the kingdom of heaven's in the birds, they'll deceive you. If you say it's in the, it's in the ocean, it's in the fish, they'll deceive you. And he kind of names some things and he says, you'll never see it. There's no sign of it's coming. It's already present. It's inside of you. It's like, you can't get any more clear than that, right? Right, exactly. That's why I'm wondering. It's like, it's almost like these Christians just ignore these certain verses or they have to come up with some just very kind of like a rational explanation for it with so many different assumptions, right? Instead of just 
taking it directly for what it means. So like, I mean, what is a common Christian excuse for that verse? Like if the kingdom of heaven doesn't come with any visible signs, right? If it can't be observed, like how is it some other mystical realm, right? Like yeah. that, that always confuses me, you know? And I, I feel like there's not any good ex- explanation for that because in their mind, this realm, it's like, it's like heaven is some mystical place that, you know, has all the same qualities of earth, just with like no evil, it's all bliss and peace. And right. that's, but that's observable, right? Right, and, right. And so, yeah, it, it just confuses me. It's like, I feel like if you really, really, with an open heart, read the Bible, you start to realize that uh, it has to mean something. I do not find this argument to be particularly strong. I understand how you can get there. But the way they got there was partially uh, via the Gospel of Thomas. And even I wouldn't go so far as to use that as a proof of anything that Jesus said. Now, it's proof of what some people wanted Jesus to have said, and so there are many non-canonical writings that include uh, episodes of Jesus' uh, life and sayings, and I would say that, if anything, those might even even be less reliable (laughs) than than what's in the Bible. That's not a blanket statement. It's not true of all of them, perhaps. But if you're trying to make a reasonable argument, I don't think you would go to the Gospel of Thomas to get there. Now, uh, as far as, you know, the argument of, well, Jesus said it's, it's not here. There are no visible signs of it here. It's in your heart. Well, that, I don't think that would cause a Christian to stumble at all. They would just say, no, Jesus is right. There's no sign of it here. Because the the Jewish framework was that there is, you know, the kingdom here, and their kingdom was the Jewish kingdom. You know, that was that was their realm of thinking, and they're saying, where is this new Jerusalem breaking out? And Jesus is saying, no, it's not breaking out here. It's not here. It's not. It's not those places where you use where you usually worship. That's not where God lives anymore. That's not where He does His work anymore. But He could He could still be saying, "Yeah, it's in a completely other realm after this life is over." So that I, I think that's probably a reasonable translation of that. And so I I, I just find uh, that particular argument pretty weak. What do you think? Pretty different. So if you read the Bible, if you read the New Testament or you read, um, you know, Christ's teachings, if you read the red letters with any kind of like Eastern philosophy, any kind of understanding of Eastern religion or philosophy, you'll know, you'll see exactly what Jesus is talking about. It's as clear as day. And this is why all of the, you know, Tibetan and Hindu gurus and, and masters who read Jesus go, oh yeah, he's an, he was an enlightened being, obviously, because they're, they're in that state themselves. So it's easy to recognize. So to your point earlier, like it's no, no one's to blame. It's no fault of their own that they misinterpreted Jesus because they weren't enlightened. So they only had the lens of ego to listen to him through. This one always pisses me off. They weren't enlightened. You know, those people weren't enlightened. Now, of course, I say 
things like this all the time, and it pisses Christians off. So I acknowledge uh, the inconsistency there, uh, but I'm I'm really talking about the whole thing when I when I say they, you know, these are the opinion opinions of goat herders on how we should live today in in this era and and their moral sensibilities in this place and time do not match ours and I would not trade ours for theirs any day but you see they're not talking about that when they say they weren't enlightened they're talking about the the audience that Jesus was speaking to and their argument is Jesus was enlightened but Everybody else, those people were just troglodytes. This is this is where it seems a little bit insulting to me because I, I'm no more enlightened than those people, apparently, because I don't understand what Jesus was saying either if it doesn't mean what it seems like it means. You know, and you, you throw in a little bit of research and some some Greek studies and uh, the the commentaries and textual criticism, and he still doesn't mean what he seems like he means. So he's a mystic, and you know, the thing about mystics is they speak in a way that ordinary people can't understand. But wait, it's not the mystic's fault. The mystic is so enlightened, he's so on another plane he can't even come down to your level to speak your language. You are going to have to ascend to the mountaintop of enlightenment to have a glimmer of understanding of what he was talking about. Fool. But yeah, you run into all these, these contradictions when you mix uh, dogmatic definitions into Christ's message when he's clearly not talking about a dogmatic thing like the kingdom of heaven. There's the passage that Christians will, you know, this is the famous passage Christians will use when they try to say, um, I'm sure you've probably heard Christians say this. Jesus talked about hell more than anyone in the Bible. Have you heard that? <laughs> uh, I've definitely heard that before. Yeah, yeah. That's always the first argument that a Christian will make when you say like hell's not actually in the Bible or Jesus never talked about it. Like, no, no, he talked about it more than anybody did. He loved hell. And they'll, they'll point this verse, I think it appears in Mark 9 or something like that. It's also in Matthew or Luke. It's the one where the, he says, um, I think it's actually the Sermon on the Mount, perhaps. But he says, if your right hand causes you to sin, chop it off. Better for you to enter the kingdom of heaven with one hand, or some passages say, better to enter the kingdom of heaven maimed than having both arms to be thrown into the fires of Gehenna. Now, of course, horrible, atrocious, egregious mistranslation of the word Gehenna is hell in most in English translations, <clears throat> because we have the King James that was, you know, pushing that narrative really heavily back then. I mean, I can't think of a concept like less applicable to what Gehenna is than hell. It's sort of like, um, you might as well like just substitute like Jupiter or something in there. I mean, there's no context, no relation at all, but there it is. I both agree and disagree. I agree that the word most commonly translated hell, in the New Testament anyway, is Gehenna. So, sure, 
but I disagree that it is somehow a dissimilar notion to our modern concept of hell. And the reason I disagree is because Jesus didn't just say, you know, a word. It doesn't matter what word he used. Let's say the word he used was falafel. You know, you're going to you're going to be cast into falafel. Okay. <laughs> Fine. What do you mean by falafel, Jesus? That's the only thing that matters. And Jesus describes in in several ways, in many places, what he means by falafel. So that we can say, oh well, falafel, that's a that's a pretty awful state. We don't we don't want to be there. That sounds like torment to me. That sounds like eternal torment to me. I don't want to go to falafel. How do we how do we get saved from falafel? You see, I don't, I don't care what word you put in there. When Jesus describes what he means, it's the description that we're going by. And so for the uh, earlier translators, hell was, you know, wh- whatever word they had at the time that was closest to the description that Jesus was giving. That's why I think that this particular argument doesn't hold water. So if you want to say, well, Jesus never talked about hell, well, it's true, he never said the word hell, but he did describe a pretty awful state of torment. They deal with that a little bit, though. Let's see uh, Let's see if they have anything useful to say about that. Uh, hint, probably not. And we read it here in the 21st century, and Christians never... I've, I've had this conversation with, I can't tell you how many Christian friends of mine are like, you know, Jesus didn't use the word hell, right? Because it didn't exist back then. You know what word he used was the word Gehenna, or actually the Valley of Hinnom. Like he was literally saying... Better for you to be uh, worse to be thrown into the fires of um, or into the Alcatraz prison in San Francisco. Like he was naming a physical location on a map people could walk to. And it gets translated as some ethereal underworld. So right here we can see this obvious contradiction, right? Heaven's a place where there's no suffering, they'll say. There's perfect peace, you know, joy. We have new bodies. We live forever. Can't die. Can't be harmed. Woo! But then all of a sudden, Jesus is saying you can enter the kingdom of heaven maimed. That seems to go against our definition. That's because he wasn't talking about a physical location you go to when you die. He's talking about a transcendent state of consciousness that he used the term the kingdom of heaven, saying it's within you. It's, it's in consciousness. So he's saying better for you to chop the hand off that's causing you to sin and have that state of consciousness with only one hand than to have both hands and keep sinning and be thrown into the fires of Gehenna, right? Just to be clear, heaven is a state of consciousness. Wait, wait, what? Now, what was Gehenna? Probably important to know, right? Gehenna in Jesus's day was like the village garbage dump. It was the place where all the trash, and this is, this is all through Josephus's literature. He mentions Gehenna many times and other historians back then. But it was a place where all the garbage would be thrown, and it was the place where lepers would hang hang out because they weren't allowed inside the city, so they had to conglomerate somewhere, so they would go to Gehenna. And most importantly, it was the place where criminals and thieves' bodies would be thrown to be burned. Now, this this makes perfect sense out of the whole passage when you understand this. Back in first century Israel, well, 
all of Judaistic history, and you probably know this, the resurrection was a huge belief of theirs that in the last day we will be resurrected from our graves. Our bodies will come back together and wrap around the bones and we'll float up to heaven with God. So the ultimate disgrace for a Jew was to not have a proper burial, especially to be burned because that means you have no body to be resurrected. So it's basically to burn someone's body was to say you are annihilated. You are wiped out from existence. And this was very much the belief in the old Testament. The Old Testament, there's no concept of hell or Hades or an afterworld where torture happens or even the devil, none of it. The only concept of an afterlife for bad people in the Old Testament was the word Sheol, which literally means the grave. So Jews were annihilationists, essentially. They believed if you don't serve our God, then when you die, you're blotted out, you're, you're annihilated. And there's all kinds of passages all throughout the Psalms. It talks about this. The wicked shall go down to the dust. They shall be remembered no more. They shall be blotted out from existence. Um, so Jesus was talking to a bunch of Jews who believed in annihilationism. Okay, so they wouldn't have a concept for a torture chamber that you go to when you die. But the fact that thieves and criminals' bodies would be burned in Gehenna, every Jew he was talking to would have known exactly what he was referring to. What he's saying is, hey, cut off whatever's causing you to sin, because it's better to have this state of consciousness I'm here to present to you and offer to you than it is to have both hands, but keep on sinning and end up like the criminals and thieves who get thrown into the fires of Gehenna. And then he says, he quotes a passage from Isaiah 48, I think 48, where he says, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So they go, see, he's talking about hell, right? But he's, he's talking about the exact opposite. And this is so hilarious to me, Connor. When you read Isaiah 48, it's the passage where the Israel Israelites got um, in big trouble with Isaiah, the prophet, who called them out on their shit because they were sacrificing, apparently some of them, were sacrificing their children into the fires of Gehenna to, as an offering to the false god Molech. Um, so what, what God says in that passage uh, Isaiah prophesies from the Lord's mouth, who says, um, you committed the ultimate abomination at Gehenna by sacrificing your children in the fire, which I did not command you to do, nor did it ever enter into my mind to command you to do. Okay, before uh, allowing him to pick up with his point about uh, eternal fire, um, I wanted to go back a little bit to his previous point, because I might be missing something, but it, it seems like he's almost contradicting himself. This argument seems to wrap around itself, and I, I think I'm just missing something. So again, I could use some help from uh, the commentariat who are listening with maybe cleaner ears than me. So I completely agree that Jews were, by and large, annihilationists. Not all Jews. You have to recognize that Jews were no more monolithic than Christians are. So there were different sects of Jews, and different Jews believed different things. They even had different versions of the Bible. You know, not all, not all Jews accepted all of the Bible, uh, all of the Old Testament that we accept today. So... 
yes, there would have been some Jews at some point who believed in some type of resurrection. But my understanding is most Jews actually did not believe in any type of resurrection. So, uh, you know, read the book of Ecclesiastes. It, it's really just all annihilationism uh, all the way down. So uh, it should not have disturbed them in the least bit that, you know, the worst thing that would happen is their bodies would be thrown into a mass pit or into, you know, some type of incinerator uh, to be burned up. Now, I know that there was some superstition around that, and so that idea might have persisted with some, but it's not like they thought, well, if they preserve the body, that they'll end up in paradise for some kind of eternity. You also have to recognize that a lot of this heaven and hell ideation in the New Testament quite possibly came from the Babylonians or, or one of their one of their um, captors in, in one of the diasporas. So the, the Jews had been passed around like a, like a hot potato for a long time, and they picked up a lot of beliefs from the people that, uh, that they lived with. <laughs> um, so I don't really understand how this argument works. The Jews had were annihilationists and therefore had no concept of of an afterlife and yet they would have they would have been deathly afraid of being thrown in Gehenna after they died because they would miss out on an afterlife it, it just seems it seems a little bit muddled to me how about you Okay, so right there, God tells Israel that burning your children in fire is an abomination, and he did not command them to do that, and it wouldn't even enter his mind to. And then Christians say, well, God tortures his children in fire. It's like such an insane contradiction. So Jesus is quoting that passage where God says to the Israelites, because you committed this abomination of sacrificing your children in the fire, apparently God doesn't like that, ironically. He says, you shall be thrown into the fire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So he, back then they talked, they spoke in metaphor, right? In parables and symbols. So he's not saying that worms, there's eternal worms that literally eat your body forever because one, worms don't live forever. Two, you're going to run out of flesh eventually, right? It's right. a metaphor to say your destruction, your death will be remembered forever. You shall always be remembered for this abomination in, this, in the eyes of Israel. Like in, in our minds, you will always be being burned in these fires because you're, you're going to go down in history for fucking up is what God is saying. So Jesus quotes that passage from Isaiah and he says, better than that to be thrown in Gehenna where the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched. So he's basically quoting the passage where God calls burning children an abomination so it's like, obviously, he's not referring to God torturing people in hell. And secondly, he said the word Gehenna, which is a physical location in Israel. 
So if he was using Gehenna, this is what Christians will say. Well, well, yeah, okay. So he did say Gehenna, but it was an analogy for hell. Okay, there's a, a lot there. Uh, yeah, I, I don't find much that I can hang on to with this argument either. In fact, this, this is kind of a unique spin on it from the arguments that I've heard previously. Maybe you are familiar with this argument that, that when Jesus says, you know, you're going to burn in Gehenna, what he's really saying is that you will go down in history as a bad guy. Well, it seems to me that's not the worst fate of a bad guy. <laughs> he wants to go down in history as being uh, singularly notorious. So I don't... I mean, is that the punishment? <laughs> that's it. People are going to remember you and say, shame on you. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's definitely a new version of hell. I, I guarantee you, if I lived my best life here on earth, there will be some group of people that will still remember me uh, with, with a tisk tisk. Shame on that guy. <laughs> so I don't know. That, that doesn't quite get it to me. But I, I think the more interesting point he makes is about um, Gehenna being at one point a place where people sacrificed their children to other gods. And I think this is a fairly weak argument to someone like me anyway. Well, God says, man, such a such an atrocious act would never even cross my mind. First of all, what was God angry with? I don't think he was angry at the child sacrifice. God was okay with child sacrifice. Uh, come at me. <laughs> That's fine. I don't, I don't mind. Uh, that wasn't the biggest crime. The biggest crime was sacrificing your children to another God, <laughs> sacrificing your children to Molech. Um, so I think that that's probably more what God was pissed off at, but the idea, but let's, let's just dial it back to, uh, God is saying, I would never do a thing like that. I would never burn my children in a fire. That That's so beyond what I would even consider. Okay. Well, hmm. What about drowning your children in a flood? Every man, woman, and child on earth or in a region, don't really care how you how you slice the Noah uh, flood story, everyone except for eight people died horribly by the hand of God. But God would never, never think about burning his children in fire. What about the fire of Sodom and Gomorrah where everyone, everyone except one family and even one of those got turned into a pillar of salt. Man, talk about comic book villainy. <laughs> but everyone else died in fire or something like fire. 
it, it, it just rings hollow. Oh, yeah, I would, I would never. It wouldn't even cross my mind to burn children in a sacrificial fire. <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. Um, no, I'm sorry. No. So if we, if we are to accept this story of the Valley of Hinnom as literal, a literal place where these people of God did atrocious things, we, we accept that as literal. Then we also have to accept as literal the atrocious things that God did in the Bible as well. And then you have to say, well, one prophet is just disagreeing with all of the other people that came before him, because we can see, we can read for ourselves the atrocious acts of God. You can't say that those are just misunderstandings of the people of that day, and then say, yeah, but this this thing that they were supposedly did in the Valley of Hinnom, that was, that was for real. That's completely reliable. I don't think so. That doesn't really hold up for me. Let's, uh, let's finish this thing off. Okay, so how in the hell, literally, would Israelites back then in the first century have made that connection? Because there wasn't a concept of hell in the Old Testament in, in Judaism. The only concept of an afterlife was the Greek belief in Hades and the god, the god Hades who rules the underworld named Hades. And he didn't use the word Hades, he used the word Gehenna. So it's like either way you slice it, if that was his one attempt to warn people that God burns you forever if you don't confess me as your Lord, pretty shitty job on Jesus' part, don't you think? Yeah. Wow. So to me, I mean, it just seems like, again, it's such a giant misinterpretation. So it seems like the idea of the stereotypical Christian hell simply came from their false idea of what heaven is. And it's kind of like they created this opposite based off a mistranslation right well and yeah and it's like it just simply doesn't exist i mean if you want to talk about what hell is even though you know yeah there's not really uh necessarily a hell in the bible but you could refer to hell as simply the opposite of heaven the real idea of heaven which would be hell would be ignorance to the truth right it would be that separation right separation the, the ego, right? Yeah. The, state, the state of mind that comes with the, the ego and still identifying with, you know, just this small self, you know? Yep. And so, I mean, I can, I can attest to it, right? I mean, looking back a year ago, right? I, I felt like I was at the best point in my life that I had ever been, right? You know, I was, I was comfortable living in LA, golfing every day, making YouTube videos is great. My life is great. And I was working on personal development, and becoming a better person. But compared to my state of mind now, I would tell you that I was living in an absolute hell. Oh, right? yeah. And I didn't even know it because my state of mind was horrible, but I, I just considered it normal. It was a state of pure separation. I thought I was separate from the rest of the universe. And there were all these insecurities, anxiety every day. I, I was worried. I had this fear, right? And... Yeah. And even though this is the issue is because so many people, they think, oh, I'm doing just fine. You know, like, I'm just fine. Like, this is how life is supposed to be. I'm not, you know, I'm not some starving child in Africa. You know, they have some gratitude, which is great. 
but they sure don't have absolute gratitude. They don't have real gratitude, gratitude for existence itself. They don't realize what is possible when they actually find the kingdom of heaven because they don't think that it's attainable in this lifetime when of course it is. And that's what Jesus was trying to, to preach to us. It's like, I mean, yeah, I mean, well, Christians, I guess, believe that how you act in this world depends upon, or that leads to if you go to heaven or hell. Yeah. But, but then they'll also say, but you can't be perfect enough to go to heaven anyway. Yeah, those so like, contradictions. Okay, like so God set up a game that we are is impossible to win, but then He's going to punish us for not winning the game. Right. It's it just seems like such a horrible scenario and a little from, psychopathic, don't you think? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, that's all we're going to cover for today. It's uh, an interesting conversation. We'll pick up with it next week, unless something uh, jumps in and, and, uh, steers me from this. But at some point I would like to come back, uh, to this. I think it's going to be next week and possibly the week after that. Um, we don't, uh, put a lot of time into progressive Christianity for any number of reasons, but I wanted to just take a look at this issue of heaven and hell from a different point of view and, Perhaps you will get some of something out of that. Perhaps you will see that they made more good points than what I saw. I think they made. I think they made a few, but uh, I think there are a few clunkers in there as well. Does uh, does this help clarify anything about heaven and hell? I mean, heaven. It's a state of mind where you know you can enter it maimed. Uh, so. All of the all of the conditions of humanity, we we somehow enter what they are thinking of as heaven. So, depression, clinical depression, you know, mental illness, physical illness, disease, mass murders, uh, hunger, insufficient uh, food, clothing, shelter, poverty. A person suffering all of that could be said to be in heaven by their view. I don't I don't think so. And then hell is this self-imposed state of being separated from the truth that you are not your ego. I I don't know, man. <laughs> I don't know. Somebody explain it to me. We'll uh, talk to you next time.